Well, our sermon text uh, this evening is 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. We are going through a little bit of an extended study of that passage as it deals with the qualifications of overseers or elders, and that's something that every church uh, needs to think about. But as we are going towards particularization, it has a particular, no pun intended, uh, interest for us. And so I'll ask if you're able to to do so that you stand for the reading of God's holy word this evening. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, give ear to God's holy word. Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, in recent, in recent weeks, as we've gone through this passage, if you've been here, you might remember we've seen that, uh, the first couple of the, the first few really, of uh, the qualifications for overseer or elder, the first is a man's aspiration or desire for the work of being an overseer. Paul mentions that in verse 1. He also talks about an overseer has to be above reproach or blameless in verse 2. And then last Sunday we saw in verse 2 that he has to be the husband of one wife. Those things are indispensable prerequisites and qualifications for the office and work of overseer or elder. Well, tonight we plan to look at some of the other qualifications that Paul lists for us in this passage. As you can see, uh, the vast majority of those things that Paul lists in our text are moral and ethical in nature. They are moral and ethical in nature. Skill and ability are not unimportant, but character and godliness are paramount, and they always have been. No amount of skill or ability, not even the ability to teach, can make up for a lack of godly character in a man's life. David Dixon, I've mentioned this before, his book, The Elder and His Work, he says uh, this again that's worth quoting, I think, for us a number of times. He says, The usefulness of an elder will depend in the long run more on his character than on his gifts and knowledge. That's why the scripture places such a premium on those things. It doesn't mean that ability doesn't matter. He does say able to teach, even in our text. But the vast majority of those things are godly character traits that we are to look for in identifying potential elders and deacons. Uh, Now, those things, as we've gone through this passage, uh, we've said it a number of times, but it bears repeating. Everything you read in this passage, with maybe the exception of ability to teach, But even that, in some regard, is to be the goal of every believer in Jesus Christ. Every believer in Jesus Christ should have it as our goal to press forward to attaining, by the grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, to those godly character traits more and more in our lives. In our text that we're looking at this evening, Paul lists a number of kind of general character qualities that are essential qualifications for an elder or overseer, and he doesn't 
He does it without any kind of elaboration. He just kind of lists them one after the other, and no elaboration. So what we're going to do this, this evening is we're going to look at the ones he mentions for us in verses 2 and, two and 3, and we're going to save the ones after that, dealing with managing one's household, not being a recent convert, and having a good reputation among outsiders for future Sundays, Lord willing. Now, some commentators have said there's some kind of a logical progression or structure of thought to what Paul says here in verses 2 to 3, as if in some way they would say each character quality builds on the next. I'm not sure that that's uh, the case. I didn't find that to be that when I was studying it. Um, And I I don't think it's obvious in the text. I don't think it's necessary to superimpose any kind of structure like that to Paul's words in order to understand and profit from it here. So what we'd like to do this evening is to look at each one of these things briefly in an order, the order that Paul brings them up in. And then I want each one of us, and this is something you'll have to do for yourself, is to examine yourself to see whether or not these godly character traits are evident in your life as a Christian. And if we come across these things and you, you say to yourself, I don't know if I see that one in my life. I don't know if I notice that one as being uh, characteristic in my life by God's work. Let us learn to diligently repent of our shortcomings and sins and seek the grace and work of the Holy Spirit to renew us more and more after the image of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that Paul lists in our text after the husband of one wife in verse 2 is that an elder or an overseer must be, he says, sober-minded. An overseer must be sober-minded. This often has the idea of not being drunk, which Paul mentions separately in verse 3 when he says, not a drunkard. It has the idea of being clear-headed, clear-headed or serious-minded. Paul uses that same word in verse 11 when he gives the qualifications for the office of deacon. Just like an elder, a deacon has to be sober-minded as well. And one of the things that's a hint to us is that's to be a part of the godly character of every believer in Jesus Christ, but especially of those whom God would call to hold office in his church. And so I ask this evening, are you sober-minded? Are you, are you clear-headed on things? Or do you allow, for instance, alcohol or substance abuse of some kind to cloud your judgment? We who are believers in Jesus Christ ought to be characterized by a kind of sober-mindedness that we are not easily manipulated or emotionally charged. Much of what we see going around us in our land, I think, in a lot of ways... Uh, seems to be a a decided lack of sober-mindedness and serious-mindedness. Many people, even in the church, are far too easily swayed and manipulated by falsehood and emotionalism rather than seeking after God's truth, right understanding, and just judgment. This shows us our continuing need of having our minds renewed according to God's word, as Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2. The next thing Paul brings up in verse 2 is self-control. Self-control. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So to lack self-control is to be left without defense. It's to be left exposed to many dangers, temptations, snares, sins, and the accompanying miseries that go along with those sins. Paul used the same word previously in chapter 2 in this very book. When he talks about his instructions for the women of the church, he says in verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, and then he adds, with modesty and self-control. 
it's a common thing for all of God's people that he requires us to emulate. Not only must an elder or deacon manage their household well, as he goes to tell us in the verses that follow, but they must first manage themselves well first. How can a man govern or rule the household of God if he cannot control his own impulses and desires first? Paul says elsewhere in Galatians chapter 5 that self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in a believer's life. Galatians 5 verses 22 to 25, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Spirit's work, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step or walk in the Spirit. True self-control is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you see a lack of self-control evident in your life, what should you do? Pray to the Lord that he might fill you with his Holy Spirit, and that he might work in you what is pleasing in his sight by these things. Christians should not be people who are easily led about their nose uh, by our emotions, desires, or the shifting tides of public opinion or outrage. We should be a people characterized by self-control, by the work of the Holy Spirit. The next thing on Paul's list is that the man who would aspire to the office of overseer or elder must be respectable. He must be respectable. Verse 2, that Greek word that Paul uses here has the idea of something being well-ordered. And so our lives as Christians, and especially the lives of, God, of the officers of Christ's church, those who are to serve as examples to the flock, must not be chaotic. They must not be out of control. The men who would serve as elders and as deacons must be men worthy of our respect. They must be able to be looked up to in faith and in life. The next godly character trait that Paul lists in our text for us here is that a man who would serve as an elder must be what? Hospitable. Hospitality. He must be hospitable. The word literally means he's to have a love of strangers. A believer and especially an officer of the church is to have a love of strangers. An elder must not be antisocial. He must not isolate himself from the, from the flock or from other people. He must not be a racist or a tribalist who only associates with those who are like him in some regard. That is no place in the church. Racism and xenophobia of any kind should have no place among those who profess the name of Christ. There are men who love books and who love the study of books, but who do not love people. Such men should avoid the ministry. An elder must be someone who not doesn't just love books, but who loves people. Now this doesn't mean, he's, you know, Paul's not talking about a personality trait. Paul's not saying that if you're a believer you have to be outgoing or gregarious. He doesn't mean you have to be an extrovert or a social butterfly. It just means that you have to care about people enough not to isolate yourself or insulate yourself from them. It also means that you have to be willing to, to lend a hand to those who are in need. You know, in Paul's day, when they talked about hospitality or loving strangers, being hospitable often meant giving someone a place to stay for the night. You know, in Paul's day, they didn't have Motel 6s on every other corner. 
And so, a, you know, a traveling evangelist or a preacher or, or a believer that was traveling had no place to go but the church. And so people had to be willing to let people into their homes. And if they didn't, they didn't have a place to stay. It was an important godly character trait in the church, and it still is. It still characterizes us in our day in many ways. Now, in the middle of all these godly character traits, the one there's one on the list that kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Maybe as I was reading through it, and you heard it, you thought, you know, remember the old, was it Sesame Street? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. What well, belongs, but it kind of sticks out, and that's the ability to teach. He says an elder, an overseer, must be, in verse 2, able to teach. Now, that has as much to do with holding forth true doctrine as it does the simple ability to convey and teach the truth. Paul is not saying that an elder must be a good speaker. I think that's how we sometimes hear it. Paul's not saying an elder has to be a really strong communicator and he has to speak well in front of of large groups. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that an elder, whether he be a ruling or teaching elder or pastor, must be able to teach God's truth from the word of God to other people. And to do that, a man must rightly understand God's word and hold fast to that truth. He has to understand it and hold fast to that truth to be able to teach it. And so, even though it might seem like it sticks out like a sore thumb, this too is also a moral and ethical quality. It's not just an innate ability, it's an ability to teach God's truth faithfully. Not just an ability. Simply being an effective communicator does not make a man able to teach. Some of the worst false teachers and heretics in the visible church today are very effective speakers and communicators. In some ways, from a, from a worldly perspective, that's how they get their following. They're very effective communicators, but they don't communicate God's truth. And they should not be in office. And so a man who would serve as an elder must not only be a man of his word, but an elder must be a man of the word. He must be someone who spends time prayerfully reading and studying the word of God. Now, that should be true of every believer in Jesus Christ, young or old, male or female, elder or not. Every believer should be a person of the book. Show me a church full of men of the book who are diligent students of the scripture and are well acquainted with the shorter catechism, and I will show you a church that is well equipped for worship, work, and witness, and one that will not be easily led astray by every wind of false doctrine. And so I ask this evening, are you spending time in God's Word? Are you reading it and studying it that you might know it more and more and know more and more what God would have you to believe and how God would have you to live and live out your faith in Jesus Christ in all things? That should be the goal of every believer in Christ and even more so for an elder or for a deacon. We should spend time in the Word of God to see what God would have us to believe and how God might have us to live to show our gratitude to Him for our salvation in Christ. Psalm number 1, the first psalm in the book, verses 1 and 2, Psalm 1, 1 through 2, it says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord, and on his law he does what? He meditates in it day and night. 
How do you know if you delight in God's Word? You spend time in it. If you delight in God's law, you will spend time meditating in it day and night. That's even what God told Joshua to do in Joshua chapter 1 that we just read a little while ago in the service. Do not let the book of this law depart from your mouth. It's something he had to spend time delighting in and meditating upon that he might make his way successful in doing God's will. The next thing Paul lists for us in verse 3 is that an elder must not be a drunkard. The Greek word here has the idea of somebody who kind of lingers at the wine. You know, he's not talking about somebody who has a glass of wine with dinner or a beer with dinner. He's talking about somebody who lingers at the wine, who spends way too much time uh, drinking to excess. The King James Version renders it as not given to wine. Now, this doesn't mean that alcohol is inherently sinful. It doesn't mean that elders must be teetotalers and abstain from alcohol entirely. In fact, in this very letter, Paul says the opposite. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul tells Timothy, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul was no prude, but being drunk is not fitting for anybody who calls upon the name of Christ, certainly not for an elder or a deacon. An elder must be known not only for self-control and sober-mindedness, but he must not be known as someone who drinks too much. He must not be a drunkard or someone who uses drugs. Paul says, likewise for deacons in verse 8, that deacons also must not be addicted to much wine. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says the following. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery or waste. But what's the opposite? He says, says, But be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk. What's the opposite? Be filled with the Spirit. And so if alcohol is exerting its influence over your character, your conversation, and your conduct, it's it's likely not the Holy Spirit and His influence that's causing that. In fact... 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, uh, it says, Paul even says that drunkards are among the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, according to Paul's words in that Ephesians passage, you could say that being drunk or high is the opposite of being filled with the Spirit. That's the way that Paul places it there. He says, do not be drunk with wine, but, and you're waiting for the opposite to be, just don't drink. And he says, no, be filled with something else. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. But Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 6, that the drunkards are among those, he calls them the unrighteous, who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, if that is the pattern of your life, if you remain unrepentant of drunkenness, then as Jesus would say in John 3.36, the wrath of God still abides on you. If that describes you, I'm not talking about somebody who stumbles along the way, somebody whose life is marked by drunkenness, The scriptures would tell you to repent of that sin and drunkenness, turn to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, and then you too, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, you too then will be washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. There is grace for drunkards. Jesus saves them all the time and breaks the power of sin over their lives. The next thing that Paul lists for us in verse 3 is that an elder must not be violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. I kind of list those three things things together. I think they kind of go together in a lot of ways. 
And so a man who would serve God in the church as an elder must not be someone with a reputation for physical violence or verbal altercations. And again, like all the things on this list, this should be true of every believer in Christ. This should be our goal as believers in Jesus Christ. We must not be known as people who are always looking for a fight, either physical or verbal. You know, in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, Paul was talking about the men of the church in general, and he says that it was his will he desired that in every place, chapter 2, verse 8, he desired that in every place the men, all the men, should pray lifting holy hands, and then he adds, without anger or quarreling. Now why does he say that? Because the men are, we tend toward anger and quarreling. It's kind of how we're wired in some ways, and so he says that should not be the case, especially among those who would serve as officers in the church. That, too, is something to be avoided and repented of by every believer. Now, there's a time to fight. There's a time to fight, and an elder should not be a cowardly man. He shouldn't be looking for a fight, but he shouldn't be a coward either. He shouldn't be unwilling to defend the faith and to guard the sheep from wolves. But a godly man is not somebody who's always looking for a fight and can't control his temper. In an elder, that would not work well for solving problems and disputes in the church. In fact, later in this very book, or in the very next book, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, Paul says this, he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, there it is again, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So our goal as elders must not be to simply win arguments. And so our approach must be marked with a kindness and a gentleness, even even if it's with a firmness, our arguing, so to speak, must be marked by kindness and gentleness. Why? Because it's only God, as Paul says there, only God who can grant them the repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. No amount of arguing till you're blue in the face, no matter how well you do it, is going to turn a dead sinner to faith in Christ. No amount of arguing till you're blue in the face and yelling till you're red in the face is going to turn someone who's been taken capture by the devil and lead them to a knowledge of the truth. Only God can do that. And he does it through his word, but it doesn't require us to be anything but gentle and kind in our dealings. And so you could say the way that we argue has to demonstrate that belief and confidence even in our approach in defending the faith. We have to have confidence that God is the one who changes hearts. We can't help the Holy Spirit out. We can't nudge the Holy Spirit along and bring a dead sinner to life. And that should show itself in how we defend the faith and correct those who have gone astray. Well, last but not least, in this section, in verse 3, Paul says, an elder must not be a lover of money. You must not be a lover of money. Later in this very epistle, later on in this book, Paul reminds us in chapter 6 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. He says it is through this craving, chapter 6, verse 10, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, in Matthew 6, 24, what did Jesus say about serving God and money? 
You can't do it. You cannot serve God and money. That may sound like a strange thing for, for him to say. We, we think of money doing what we want. Having money means the money serves us, but not if the money is, a, is your idol. Not if the money is the most important thing in your life and guides and guards all your decisions. Then who's serving whom? You're serving money in that case. Now, in this very epistle, Paul says that the, word, the worker is worthy of his wages and we're not supposed to muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So we in the church, uh, as we often say, we must be willing to pay our ministers a competent worldly maintenance. It's an odd phrase from our book of church order. Uh, as the members of our churches even vow to do when you extend a call to the pastor, and we have done that, thankfully, here. But if, what if money is the motivation? That might be a hard thing to, to figure out, but money can't be the motivation for ministry. I think in most cases it's not. Uh, people that want to make money, this isn't the line of work they go into, uh, at least not the good ones. But if money is the motivation, nothing good can come from that. And so those who might be uh, thinking about becoming elders and even pastors you must guard our hearts from the love of money, especially those, again, who would serve as officers in the church. For you know, Think about this. How many churches have you read of, and maybe you've been a part of, that have had some kind of scandal among the ministers and elders of a sexual nature? Well, just as many churches have been scandalized by financial things as well. Just as many pastors and elders have been ruined by a love of money as they have of other kinds of sins and scandals. And so we who are in the leadership of the church or those who would look to serve in the church as officers must demonstrate to the rest of the congregation that we are worthy of their trust. You know, if we're going to, as we should, if we're going to teach the members of the church to tithe and give 10% of what we uh, have made, as we're supposed to do, we have to make it easier for them to do so by showing trustworthiness with that money. And that money belongs to God in the first place. Well, in conclusion... You know, we haven't even finished the passage yet. We just looked at two of the verses out of the seven this evening. Does that feel a little bit overwhelming? As I was going through that list, did you feel kind of a weight pressing down on your shoulders, so to speak? Were you looking in the, the mirror of Scripture and saying to yourself, yeah, I've got, a lot of work, I've got a lot of work to do in that one. Or the Holy Spirit, rather, has a lot of work to do in my life in these areas. Well, as you're, you're seeing... These things in which you might be falling short and wanting to grow in, in godliness, uh, as many many of us often do. You know, I, I I think very often that's a good thing. You know, one of the worst things you can do is when you hear a passage like this or anything like that. You know, very often you ever like been tempted to nudge the person next to you and go, "I know somebody that really needs to hear this." Well, the person that needs to hear it is the one looking in the mirror, and that goes for all of us. You know, recently uh, before this shutdown. Uh, as it is now, we were studying through the Heidelberg Catechism, and Lord willing, we'll go back to doing that. And the Heidelberg Catechism in question and answer 114, it, it has an encouraging note, I think, at least it encourages me. It says, even the holiest of men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience, yet so that with a sincere resolution they begin to live, not according to some, but all the commandments of God. So, the holiest person you ever meet has a small beginning at most of these very things. God, God has a lot of work to do in each one of our lives, even among the holiest among us. And the very next question kind of gives us the right attitude as we go forward. Question 115 of the Heidelberg. It says that as Christians we should, quote, learn more and more to know our sinful nature 
and thus become the more earnest in seeking the remission of sin and the righteousness in Christ. Likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in the life to come. That's a long quote, but what he's saying is when you when you look at God's commandments and when you hear them being, so, so, so to speak, strictly preached to the point where you're seeing all these you know shortcomings and sins in your life and you might be discouraged even as a Christian, what should you do? Let this show you your sinful nature. Let it, let God show you the things he still has yet to work on. And because of that, let that drive you more to Christ. Let that drive you to Christ for forgiveness of your sins and for the righteousness that is only to be found in Christ. What, what this does is, it's a guard, a safeguard for a believer, for all of us, against legalism and self-righteousness. When, when the text kind of pulls you up short and says, hey, look at, look at this. This is something you have to work on that God is not done with you yet. Let it drive you to Christ and ask for forgiveness of your sins and seek after the justification, uh, you know, relying only on that which is found in the righteousness of Christ. And then it says, constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. Because you can't do it on your own. None of these things are possible for any of us on our own. Only the Holy Spirit can work these things in our life. So, brothers and sisters, I hope that you're not discouraged. Uh, be strong and courageous, as God would say to Joshua in our text earlier. Let these things keep driving you to Christ for forgiveness and righteousness in Him that's only to be found in Him by faith. And pray to the Holy Spirit to change you and make you more like Christ. Pray that God might fill you with His Spirit and change you more and more and conform you more to the image of Jesus Christ. And as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, uh, he said he's confident that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion even until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.